So this morning we're, um, I guess next, well, next week we're going to have our nine lessons in carols. So this is the final Sunday of our series on the promised king. Um, and this series has been great fun kind of looking through the, um, the passages in the Old Testament prophets that point towards the coming Messiah in the midst of like peoples who are, who are struggling and dealing with all sorts of different things that... Um, that are many of which are like foreign to the world in which we live today. Um, and so as part of this Advent theme of waiting and learning to wait actively, but to wait in motion, um, uh, exploring these passages has been fascinating for me. Uh, and I had great fun with the prophet. Today we're in the prophet Zephaniah. I'm not going to lie to you. Didn't have a clue about Zephaniah up until about this weekend. Um, some of the smaller, minor prophets, they, they have escaped me thematically. And so diving into this was fun, but it was really fun for like some of the stuff that I had no idea was there within it, um, which meant that I expanded the reading from the lectionary readings to include some other stuff. So, um, you know, just bear with me as I nerd out on, um, on some of this absolute wonderfulness um, within this passage. So I'm also going to try and read it with the gusto that I think that Zephaniah would have written it with. Um, so you're also going to have to bear with the awkwardness of that if that's all right with you. Basically, I mean, you have no choice, but, you know, come along for the ride. So Zephaniah chapter 3. At that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, my scattered ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of all the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. For I will leave in the midst, I will leave in the midst of you a people, humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, the remnant of Israel. They shall do no wrong and utter no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouths. Then they will pasture and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing as on the day of a festival. I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with all your oppressors at that time. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home at the time when I gather you. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. So who is Zephaniah? He was a minor prophet. His book is not long. It's three chapters, and this is from chapter three. Um, and to, to figure out who Zephaniah is, there's actually no clues in the rest of the Old Testament who Zephaniah is. He doesn't get mentions that help you place him in terms of space and time or timelines. Um, he, he doesn't have interactions with other people. And so we get our sense of who he is and what he is and where he's at from his own introduction. So this is Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. 
The word, of the, Lord that, the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of King Josiah, son of Amon of Judah. Helpful, right? You know, everyone's going, oh, that's Zephaniah. Yeah. So, there are a couple of names here that stand out. So, and some of you might remember from a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the story of Jeremiah, we looked at as this wonderfully nerdy diagram, okay? So um, uh, on the left-hand side, you have the century, so from the 10th century to the 5th century. Then in colors, you have the um, different prophets who were active at that time and how they crossed over each other. So for example, Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Isaiah, Hosea, Amos, and Micah were all around the same time there. You can see that in the 8th century there. Um, and here is where um, Zephaniah is. If we go to the next slide there, that'll circle him. And let's actually zoom in on that. And then we, so we have um, Zephaniah, and you see he's prophesying around the same time as Jeremiah, who we talked about, but also Nahum. So you, some of you might have known the story of Jonah, who prophesied the destruction of Nineveh, um, and, uh, and God relented from destroying Nineveh. Um, and then, um, but actually a few books later, in the book of Nahum, because Nineveh returns to destructive ways, um, Nahum comes and prophesies its eventual destruction, which actually happens. Um, so... Zephaniah, he lived around that same time um, as, uh, the other, as those other prophets. Um, and we can also see, like, in his introduction, if we go back to the introduction there, we can see a couple of names that we might... Um, does anyone see a name there that they uh, recognize? Hezekiah, right? So Hezekiah, you're kind of reading that, you're thinking, okay, Hezekiah, if you are big, I don't know if you're big into your like, list of kings and stuff like that, but Hezekiah was a good king. Um, and so he's called son of Hezekiah. Um, and if you go, I think to the next one is another timeline there. If you look back from Zephaniah, go right to king, to during the time of King Josiah when he was prophesying, if you go back three generations, that's where Hezekiah is. But in Zephaniah 1 verse 1, it's only a couple generations. He says, I'm son of, son of Hezekiah. And so you actually see that, um, that this may actually be a prophet who has royal blood. He's a descendant of the good king Hezekiah. And instead of living in a palace where the center of power is, he's out at the fringes bringing a prophetic word to a people who have lost their way. And then you see this, uh, so if we go to the next slide there, he's also called son of Cushi. Now, Cushy is an interesting word um, where different scholars kind of disagree on what exactly this may mean. Um, the Cush the that we know of is a grandson of Noah whose people eventually settled in what became the land of Cush in Ethiopia. And in actually in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, all of the time whenever... Um, whenever uh, Cush is described. It's always referring to ancient Ethiopia. And there within Ethiopia was a, a sect of Ethiopian Jews who were trying to live out their faith in Africa rather than in Israel. And so you find this, um, you find that actually this, this word Cushy, this may be a name that is referring to his African descent. And so you may actually have this prophet here who's actually an African prophet, an African Jew in Israel who also has royal blood, who's bringing a word to the people to say, you need to change your ways, and who's promising this eventual restoration of all things. According to Zephaniah, God will reject the prideful and the hypocritical who follow the letter of the law but miss the point of it. 
And instead, he will gather for himself the scattered, the outcast, and the rejected. They will be his people, and they'll be at the center of his redemptive plan for the world. And as you read this, and you're trying to figure out, who, who is this guy, Zephaniah? He writes, son of Cushi, which may be a reference to African heritage, to being from Ethiopia. He writes, from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my suppliants, my scattered ones, shall bring my offering. And so this is begin, the beginning of a, of, a, of a promise that's about when I bring my redemptive plan for the world, it's not going to be for you, it's going to be through you. And it's not just to your little part of the world, but it's from that part of the world out and over, overflowing into a way that blesses the whole world according to the original promise to Abraham that said, I will make you a blessing to all nations. And then you've got this other really interesting language in the passage as well where um, uh, there's these three lines that kind of happen. I, I pulled these out from a couple, there are a couple of verses spaced out, but when you pull them together, you, you, um, your memory suddenly goes back to ancient stories from Genesis. At that time, I'll change this, the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. And you're going through your inner uh, biblical encyclopedia. When, when did somebody's speech change? What, what, like when, when, when we're, the way in which people talk, uh, talk, when did the way in which people talked change? And you can think back to, to Genesis and to the story of Babel, where a group of people um, uh, believed that they could build a pillar to, to go, uh, build a tower to go up to God and conquer heaven. And God frustrates their plan by suddenly they all speak different languages and they can't work together anymore. And you suddenly get this thing of, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I will bring them back to one language and one voice. And after they build this, this um, tower, but, but suddenly find themselves with different languages, unable to connect and to communicate and to work together, they scatter throughout the world. My suppliants, my scatter ones. And what was at the heart of Babel was the story of pride, this pridefulness, the belief that they could climb to the heavens and take the place of God. And he says, I will remove from your, play, from your midst your proudly exultant ones. Instead, they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. It's the undoing of the story of Babel. One of my favorite um, uh, uh, mini books that I've ever read um, is by a friend of mine called Philip. For his thesis, he wrote, a, um, uh, a, he wrote a novella for his thesis called Out of Time. Uh, and he was studying theology. He's actually now a, um, he's an Anglican minister in Cincinnati. Um, and in, so instead of writing a normal thesis, he wrote um, a story. And the story was Genesis chapter 1 to 11, upside down and in reverse. And so it began with the story of Babel. But instead of building a tower, they found a tower. And when they, when they saw the tower, they said to themselves, look at all these resources. And they came from all different nations and all different languages. And they came into the tower and they started tearing it down. And in tearing it down and working together, they learned a common language. And so they deconstructed this tower that was supposed to reach to the heavens. And instead, with the bricks, they built houses and created a community. And in that community, they had a common language from their common goal. And then the whole story goes back all the way. Instead of the flood coming from the sky, the flood comes up out of the ground and brings about redemption. It's stunning. And I think Zephaniah here, he's, he, he's making us think of, of, um, of Babel, of, of the, the pride and um, the desire to conquer the world that made us, um, that resulted in, in our differences and our, our conflict and the ways in which we no longer speak the same tongue. And then I also think of when else did people's language change? 
at Pentecost. After Jesus dies, he's raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven. And the, the apostles go out and they preach in Jerusalem. And when they preach, everybody hears them in their own language. I will change their speech to a pure speech. I will bring together my scattered ones. I will cast down those who are prideful and hypocritical and haughty, but I will gather the humble and the lowly. And then I got really excited. This is still, we're still in the introduction. I hope you're okay with that. I, I'm sure you didn't have any other plans for your Sunday, so it's fine. Um, then there's also the story of, um, if you go to Acts chapter 8, you find the story of the, um, well, in Acts chapter 7, you, you, you have um, the story of Stephen who gets up and he gives this sermon talking about the God who is, who is no longer seeking just to, just to who, is, who has never been about just blessing one group of people, but instead is revealing himself through people to the world. And the response of the religious leaders who want to hold the blessing and the authority of God to themselves is to take Stephen, to take him outside and to stone him to death. And you get that, those images in Zephaniah of what he's talking about, of a, about the pride, hypocritical religious leaders who are like, no, I am God's favorite and I am blessed because I deserve to be blessed. And then Stephen who's like, no, it's this blessing, we're not called to hold on to this, it's supposed to overflow out of us and pour into the whole world. And, and the religious um, authorities, they, they, they stone him to death for it. The, welcome is not the, the message is not welcome in Jerusalem. But then you have this story of Philip who goes outside of Jerusalem, out to Samaria, out to the ones who are considered the outsiders. They would have been considered, um, uh, in, if you were to use Harry Potter language for it, these are muggles. Um, these are the ones who are outside of, uh, of the ones who are considered precious. They're the ones who are considered unfaithful, and that's why they've mixed with other peoples and they've worshipped other gods. But Philip goes out there and says, this message of God is for all people. And then he goes, and as he's walking along, he hears a chariot come past. And on that chariot is a man, an Ethiopian eunuch. And Philip gets up on the chariot beside him and starts explaining to him the passages that he's been reading out. He leaves Jerusalem, this place where the religious authorities are trying to control um, who the message of God is for. And here, this Ethiopian eunuch, who, based on his race and based on his, um, uh, based on his um, physical form and his um, sexual form, is rejected from being part of the temple. Philip is up there beside him, explaining to him the message that he's reading out loud from Isaiah. He was a slave, a foreigner, an outsider, someone who was sexually and physically unacceptable to the religious authorities, and the Spirit leads Philip right to him so that he can bring the kingdom of God back to Ethiopia and to the Cushites. It's just this fascinating thread that weaves through the story about who Zephaniah was and how he, in this, this tiny book that's so unknown and so disconnected, is actually power, powerfully connected to this whole story that is for all people. So let's get into the actual text. <laughs> so, I'm real sorry. Not, not sorry. Uh, let's go to the next, one, the next slide here. I love these lines from Zephaniah. Do not let your hands grow weary. The Lord your God is in your midst. He doesn't say don't let your hearts grow heavy. He doesn't say don't let your eyes grow tired. He doesn't say don't let your heads fall. He says do not let your hands grow weary. Because this is how we as the people of God are called to wait with moving and active hands. 
hands that touch and that toil, hands that help and hands that heal, hands that reach down and reach out to others. Our waiting for the eventual restoration and redemption of all things is, is not a passive, distant, disconnected waiting, but a holding on to the promise that even though we may experience this night as being jet black with no stars, there is a dawn coming that will bring hope and healing and transformation. And that's what Advent is about. Zephaniah goes on, or the Lord goes on to say through Zephaniah, and I will deal with your oppressors. The full verse is this, I will deal with all your oppressors at that time, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. Which raises big questions for, for us. Most of us are people of power and privilege who profit from the oppression of others. The clothes that we make, the food that we eat, the people who do the jobs that we don't want to do, the people who make our phones, our computers, the people who make, make the, profit, the products that we sell at our jobs. All of us, as part of this community, in one way or another, benefit from the oppression of others. That doesn't mean to say that we haven't experienced oppression, that we haven't at times felt like we're under the cosh. But for most of us in this socioeconomic area, we benefit from the way in which the world is unjust. And one of the greatest dangers that we can have when we come to Scripture is we can read these passages and think, see, God will deliver us. But what if actually the challenge of this passage is not that we are waiting for God's deliverance, but rather that others who God also loves are waiting for deliverance from the way in which we live? What if the way in which we live in the world is what keeps others in poverty? From the way in which our housing market is done to our economy, to our immigration policy, to direct provision, to um, the, the way in which we vote and the reasons why we vote the different ways in which we vote. We are part of a system. And the prophets come in and they challenge, and they, they challenge the systems to change to bring in the kingdom of God. Not for our benefit, but for the benefit of those, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we do it deliberately or accidentally, or whether we're just caught up in a system, who are the ones who suffer on our behalf. The promises of God are to the broken, the hurting, and the outcast. Zephaniah goes on, the Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you in his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Which raises this question for us, and it's particularly important, I think, around this time of year. What is our reaction to those who are broken, hurting, and outcast? Do we reject the ones that God rejoices over? To the ones who he will renew with his love, do they say, those people will never change? 
do we whisper about those over whom God sings with love and joy? Until Jesus comes again, we are the answer to this prayer. Called to rejoice over people with gladness. To bring them renewal through His love working in us. To sing over them the truth of who they are, that they are loved and that God is with them and that God is for them. That He will bring us all home and bring restoration to our lives, our stories, and to our world. Because next week, we will celebrate the coming of Emmanuel. Christmas is about the coming of Emmanuel. When Mary and Joseph are told that they are going to give birth to a son, it is said, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. From the time of Zephaniah, the prophets have been calling us to remember, God is in your midst on behalf of the broken, on behalf of the scattered, on behalf of the outcast, on behalf of the oppressed. And so we wait. We do not wait with stilled hands. Zephaniah says, do not let your hands grow weary. Do not stop doing what is right. Do not give up hope that things can be different. Do not allow a narrative to disempower you from believing that God is at work in all people and in all places, bringing about redemption, restoration, and change. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel.